pass from this life into the next traditions that surround that time of passing, that period of saying goodbye. And some of those traditions are helpful and some are not so helpful. We have here in the South, our tradition is that we bring food and lots of it. But there are other traditions that are maybe a little bit less helpful. And I think of one particular tradition that is a common tradition among African uh, tribesmen, particularly Muslim African tribesmen. When a loved one passes away, then they take the body of that loved one and they put it in the ground, as we do, and then everybody who knew that person gathers around the graveside and they pass out pieces of peppermint candy. And everyone stands around the grave looking into the grave and puts the the peppermint candy in their mouth. And as they stand there in silence, sucking on the peppermint candy, the sweetness of the candy is supposed to remind them of the sweetness of the person that they just buried. And then when the candy is gone, then the person is gone. And they're supposed to turn and leave in silence and never again speak of that person because that person is now gone. That's a tradition that is less than helpful because it is completely untrue. The end of this physical life is nothing like the end of existence. In fact, the end of this physical life is really the beginning of life. We're in a series called the afterlife, and even that word afterlife is a little bit misleading because it, it causes us to believe that there is the, the, the life is really this one, and then what comes after this is not life, as though this is what life is about. But even the, the name is misleading because the end of this physical life is really the beginning of what is to come. I think of tombstone inscriptions. Last week we talked about the actor Dustin Hoffman and how he has planned that on his tombstone he will have the words inscribed, I knew this would happen. And we all sort of had a chuckle last week because we all know that that's going to happen. There is another celebrity that has already passed on who has something written on his tombstone that is, I think, a little bit less accurate than that. We're all familiar, hopefully, with Mel Blanc. Everybody remember Mel Blanc? He was the voice of Looney Tunes, Bugs Bunny, and all of that. Well, what was his signature phrase? That's all, folks. And that is on his tombstone. That is all, folks. And nothing could be further from the truth. Because that is not all, folks. That is just the beginning. Dwight Moody, I'm, I'm reminded of something that he said near his life as he was just a few days from his physical death. From his bed, he is reported to have said this, in a few days you will read in the papers that Dwight Moody is no more. That he has died and he is no more. And when you read that, don't believe it because it's not true. Because when that moment comes, I will never have been more alive than then. And that is a more accurate portrayal of what is to come in this so-called afterlife. So we're going to pick up today, this is the second message of this series. Last week we looked at physical death. And as we begin the message this morning, what I want to do is I want to put a picture into your mind. And I want you to think about that picture and I want you to keep that picture with you as we go through this series and then after this series is over. Because this picture will help you significantly to grasp what it is that God would have us as Christians to believe about the next life. And that picture that I'd like you to put in your mind is a picture of a curtain. Imagine a room such as this one, and the room is divided into two sides. And and the division between the sides of the room is done by a curtain. A large curtain 
that extends from wall to wall, from floor to ceiling. And the curtain has a separation in the middle of it. It's a thick curtain and a dark curtain, and you cannot see through it. And what's on the other side of that curtain is someone, picture your mother, wrapping for you a Christmas gift. And that gift is not just any Christmas gift. This is the Christmas gift to end all Christmas gifts. And you're on the other side of the curtain. And you very much want to know what the gift is. And from the other side of the curtain, your mother is giving you hints as to what the gift is. She's telling you, you know, it's really heavy and it's kind of shiny. It sort of jiggles when I shake it a little bit. And it's something that you're really going to like. And she's giving you all these hints about what the present is, but you, you don't know exactly what it is. And you want more than anything to open that curtain and peer through the curtain and see what the present is. However, your mother has given you specific instructions. Do not open that curtain. And you know that if you open the curtain, you are going to displease the very one who is wrapping and giving you the gift. And so you're kind of torn between jerking the curtain open or peeking through the curtain and being content with the hints that your mother has given you. I want you to keep that picture in your mind as we go through that because that curtain is physical death. And what's behind that curtain, God has told us some things about, but not a lot. He's left more unsaid than He has said. And there is a tremendous temptation for us as humans to want to peer through the curtain and see what's behind it. And God has forbidden that. He has told us that it will displease Him for us to peer through the curtain. We're going to talk about that this morning. We're going to talk about that some more in weeks to come. We're going to talk about near-death experiences in the future. Today we're going to talk about um, trying to peer through the curtain and not being content with what God has said to us. But keep that image, that picture in your mind that will help us as we proceed forward. So we are, as we said, we're going to take about a couple of months here to talk about the next life, the next existence. Last week we began with physical death. And we looked at physical death. The purpose of the message last week is the same purpose as the message this week, which is the same purpose for all of these messages. It's twofold. First, affirmation and then um, affirmation and uh, anticipation. We want to affirm a biblical understanding of the next life, and we want to anticipate that life with great, great uh, anticipation with a great longing and a great looking forward to because what the Bible tells us about what is to come is something that should create within us a huge driving anticipation for what is to come. So, uh, affirmation of a biblical understanding of the next life and anticipation. So last week we began that with uh, looking at the, the topic of physical death. What happens when our bodies stop living? Uh, we looked at that and we saw three points, three positive things about physical death. First of all, we saw that the Scriptures teach us that physical death is not a punishment of our sin. Uh, death is a result of sin, but for the believer in Jesus Christ, physical death is not a punishment for sin because Jesus Christ has taken all of our punishment for us. So we do die physically in a sense, but the physical death for believers is not the same physical death as unbelievers incur. We experience a shadow of physical death because Jesus Christ has borne the punishment that was physical death. Secondly, we saw that physical death is an important part of our sanctification process. When we enter into physical death, 
we become like Christ in the sense that physical death is the single greatest opportunity that the believer ever has to live with faith, to exercise faith in the unknown. There is no greater unknown that you face than the unknown of physical death. And so therefore you have no greater opportunity to face the unknown with faith than when you face physical death. So it's an important part of your sanctification process of becoming like Christ in a death like His. Thirdly, we saw that physical death, the Scriptures teach us, is a blessing. It is a blessing, a good thing that God brings out of a bad thing, which is His way of doing things. He brings a blessing out of evil. The blessing for the believer is that physical death is the necessary step in order for us to enter into eternity in a perfect condition. Without the blessing of physical death, each of us would enter into eternity dragging with us the effects of sin on our bodies and on our minds. God has told us in His Word that the the corrupting effect of sin is too great for Him to fix in the sense of fixing it in our bodies. And so, He blesses us with the gift of physical death, as He tells us in Genesis 3, so that He can then resurrect us in an uncorrupted body, in an uncorrupted mind, so that we then enjoy eternity in that uncorrupted state. So those are what we, the things that we saw last week with physical death. Today we turn to step two of the afterlife. And for lack of a better term, we'll just call this the intermediate state. This is the period of existence in which we will exist between the, the points of physical death and resurrection. The intermediate state, the intermediate state we'll call it. And again, we'll just, uh, we'll say that the point, the purpose of the message this morning is to, first of all, affirm a biblical view of what happens to us during that intermediate period, and secondly, create within us great anticipation for what is to come. So let's begin talking about the intermediate state. Go ahead and get your sermon notes handy. We're going to be looking at those. You may want to have a Bible handy as well. Let's begin talking about the intermediate state by first noticing what the intermediate state is not. The Bible affirms for us that the intermediate state is not a state of sleep or loss of consciousness. When we die physically, we do not go to sleep in the sense that we think of sleep now. When we sleep now, we enter into a state of unconsciousness or greatly reduced consciousness. We're still aware of the passing of time. We're still faintly aware that something's going on. I think of, for example, we have in our house sort of a tradition that Sunday night after Sunday night service, we get kids in bed, we make a pizza, and we watch a movie. Well, as you might imagine, that uh, Sunday is a rather tiring day for me, so sometimes if the movie is not particularly interesting, I will fall asleep during the movie. And when, when that happens, it's not as though I'm aware of anything that's happening. I still am aware that there's a movie going on, but when I wake up, I can't tell you what happened. So I'm in, I'm in a state of very reduced consciousness or close to unconsciousness. And sometimes we think of Death is that extended state of unconsciousness. This has been taught from time to time throughout the history of Christianity that death, physical death, is a sleep or a soul sleep. Today, this is believed most a seventh. If you know a seventh day Adventist, anybody know a seventh day? If you know one of them, then you know somebody who believes in soul sleep. They believe that physical death brings a state of sleep. And the scriptures teach us that that is not the case. However, It's easy to see why we might think that. 
It's easy to see because the Scriptures will refer to death with the word sleep so often. Dozens of times in the New Testament particularly. It will refer to physical death as sleep. For example, in your sermon notes here, John 11, verse 11, Jesus says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and so I'll go to wake him up. Or 1 Thessalonians 4.14, Through Jesus, God will bring with those who have fallen asleep. So, Scripture refers to physical death as sleep very often, and so we can see where the confusion comes in, but we should be careful to understand that when the Bible refers to death as sleep, it's referring to a sleep of the body, not a sleep of the soul or a sleep of the conscience. In other words, when we fall asleep now, we are located inside of our physical body. Our soul, our consciousness is in a physical body. And when that physical body falls asleep, the soul also experiences sort of a reduced consciousness, so to speak. But physical death is a separation of the soul from the body. So when the body then goes into the sleep of death, the soul doesn't experience that. Scriptures teach us that the sleep of death is a sleep of the body only. For example, Matthew says in Matthew 27 that the tombs were also open. This is the point of Jesus' death. The tombs were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. So in other words, there's a clear connection here between the body and the sleep of death. Or as James will say in James 2 verse 26, he uses this as an illustration for faith apart from works. He says, just as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So in other words, the body apart from the Spirit is a sleeping or lifeless or dead body. So we sleep now, we enter into a physical sleep, and the physical sleep that we enter into is a rest for our bodies and our minds. But when we sleep, it's not a rest for our soul. You don't wake up the next morning feeling revived in your soul. You wake up the next morning feeling revived in your body and revived in your mind, but your soul is not entering into a rest in the same way. So when we speak of the fact that physical death does not bring an end to consciousness, physical death doesn't interrupt our stream of consciousness, what passage of Scripture do we normally go to to illustrate that? Right there in your sermon notes, we normally go 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, right? When we say, we, we quote that this way, which is actually to misquote it, we'll say, Scripture says that to be apart from the body is to be present with the Lord. I've even misquoted that. That's a very commonly misquoted Scripture. But notice with me that a, that a very plain reading of the passage does, tells us that that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is expressing, rather, his preference. He says, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. He's not necessarily saying there that absence from the body, that when the soul is removed from the body, that automatically means that the soul is in the presence of the Lord. He's expressing his preference. Because we know that absence from the body doesn't automatically mean presence with the Lord, does it? If that was the case, then those who died outside of Christ would be in paradise now. And so we know that many people die and their souls are not taken into the presence of the Lord. Paul is expressing his preference here. So where does that leave us? What do the Scriptures say to us about what happens to us at the point of death? Do we lose consciousness, or do we keep consciousness and go somewhere else? I think the Scriptures show us in plenty of other places 
that our consciousness will never be interrupted. For example, think of the thief on the cross from Luke chapter 23. Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, we'd have to do a lot of tricks to get around that word today. Jesus says today, as in immediately, you will be with me in paradise. Your physical death will come today, and today is the day that you'll be with me in paradise. Now, I've heard that verse used in, in ways that try to get around the today part of that. For example, Roman Catholics have to do some, some tricks with that verse because, as you know, Roman Catholics believe in the false doctrine of purgatory, that after physical death we go to a place of suffering and punishment to be purged of our sins. And so they've got to do some gymnastics with the word today there. But a plain reading tells us that Jesus is saying to the thief, this day you will be with me in paradise. However, we know that the thief's body didn't go to paradise with Jesus. The thief's body was on the cross and they threw it in a grave. So Jesus is clearly saying that when your soul becomes separated from your body, this is the day that you'll be with me in paradise. Or take, for example, Revelation chapter 7. Revelation 7, John is seeing a vision of those who have entered into physical death. And he, what he sees them doing is very helpful for us. Keep in mind, Revelation 7 is some uh, 11 or 12 chapters before the resurrection. So what John is seeing is pre-resurrection souls and what they're doing. From Revelation 7, he says this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, tribes, peoples, and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So those are unresurrected believers who are in the presence of God, enjoying the presence of God. So I think Scripture, outside of 2 Corinthians 5.8, which doesn't teach us what we think it does, outside of that, Scripture tells us in plenty of other places, that we do not stop our consciousness, we do not stop our existence at the point of physical death, but instead our existence is changed into another type of existence immediately. So if, if physical death is not sleep in the sense of no consciousness, why do the Scriptures refer to death as sleep? Scriptures refer to death as sleep because it is a rest for the body. For example, from Revelation chapter 14, we're told that those who have entered into physical death are experiencing a rest from their labors. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. So physical death is a rest from our labors, from the toil and the frustration that comes from the curse of sin as we labor in creation and in our world. Uh, physical death is a rest from those labors. Now, by the way, we'll get to this when we get to the resurrection and what comes after the resurrection, but when the Scriptures tell us that physical death is a rest from our labors, it's also implying that our labors aren't done. If our labors were finished at physical death, then wouldn't it say your labors are over? But a rest implies a period of rest and then labor is taken up again, which we'll see as we get to the eternal state. But in any case, physical death is a rest, just like physical death is now. I'm sorry, physical sleep is now. As we go to sleep, our bodies and our minds receive a rest from that. But the thing to think about as we, as we think about the comparison of death to sleep 
one thing that we notice is, do, do any of us worry about waking up in the morning? Does anybody go to sleep at night wondering, am I going to wake up tomorrow? That thought may cross your mind from time to time, but I really don't think that anybody lives their life worrying, am I going to wake up tomorrow? We take it for granted, don't we? Because we've proven it thousands of times. Some of us may have proven it millions of times, I don't know, but we've proven it thousands of times that every time we go to sleep, we wake up. Now, I know that there are times that people go to sleep and don't wake up, but the point is, just as there is an end to physical sleep, so also there is an end to physical death. And in that way, the comparison works for us. Physical death is not a a ceasing or a stoppage of consciousness, but it is a continuation of consciousness. And for those who enter into physical death, we know that what awaits them after that can be different based on their relationship with Christ. For the believer, physical death means immediately going into the presence of God. Think of Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. This is what Paul says right after that, that well-known passage where he says to live is, to, is Christ and to die is gain. He goes on to say, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. In other words, Paul doesn't say my desire is to depart and sleep. Or my, de- my desire is to depart and wait for the resurrection. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. Or think about the thief on the cross again. Today, you will be with me in paradise. So, the believer who enters into physical death, the one who enters physical death while trusting in Christ, is ushered into the presence of God. The unbeliever, by contrast, is ushered into torment and uh, anxiety and darkness and desperation and despair. The unbeliever, the the one who enters physical death while not trusting in Christ, does not experience a ceasing of of consciousness, but they experience torment. They're not put into hell. Nobody will make this clear in a couple of weeks, but nobody is in hell yet. Nobody has been cast into hell yet. But those who enter physical death outside of Christ enter into a state of torment. Think of the, the story again of Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man goes immediately into a state of torment. There is no purgatory. Purgatory is a false Roman Catholic doctrine that that the Catholics had to invent in order to make their false gospel of works work out. See, the Catholics don't believe that we are given the righteousness of Christ. Instead, Catholics believe that we earn the righteousness of Christ. And so therefore, if you're earning righteousness, it stands to reason that most people aren't going to make it. And so when you enter into physical death, they had to create a place to go where you could suffer and be punished and purge yourself of your remaining sin, a purgatory. There is no purgatory. It's not found anywhere in Scripture. So we do not enter into purgatory. There is no reincarnation. Scripture never speak anything about the, the possibility of a soul going from one physical body to the next. Our soul will re-enter our resurrected physical body, but souls do not go from one body to the next. There is no such thing as reincarnation. A surprising number of Christians today are starting to believe in some sort of doctrine of reincarnation. You may know somebody who does. In fact, I remember years ago, I used to have a lady in a Sunday school class that I taught at a different church who claimed to be a Christian, but also believed in reincarnation. She would tell me that she had memories of a previous life 
in which she remembered walking across the plains in the 19th century on the Oregon Trail. Now, what do you say to that? What do you say to somebody who claims to have memories of another life? Here's what you say. Souls do not go from one body to the next, but demons do. And it is entirely possible for a demon to leave the body of one person when that person dies and enter into another person and carry with it vestiges of experiences that the other person experienced. So if somebody speaks to you about memories from a past life, just know what you're hearing. You're hearing of experiences of demon activity. So there is no reincarnation. There's no purgatory. There's no annihilation. Some are beginning to teach today this, this false doctrine that, that those who die in Christ go to be with God. Those who die outside of Christ just stop existing. We'll talk about this when we get to next, or in a couple of weeks when we get to the, the topic of hell. The scriptures teach us that there is no stopping of existence for those who are inside of Christ or outside of Christ. Neither do we become angels at death. Um, I, I'm really discouraged sometimes when I hear Christians that they'll speak in, in terms like such and such loved one that's gone ahead into death, they're now an angel. The Scriptures say nothing about that. We do not become angels. In fact, the Scriptures teach us that angels are a lower being than us. And so if it's your desire to go into the next life and be an angel, just, just realize that you, you are wishing for a downgrade. Because we are created above the angels. So we do not become angels. We're not reincarnated. There's no purgatory. We go from this existence to one of two other existences. Now, what will that existence look like? That's sort of the big question. What will it look like? Will we have bodies? Will we be doing things? Will we, will we be just like a cloud floating around? What will that existence look like? Well, it, we need to connect a few dots from Scripture. Scripture does teach us a little bit about what that existence will look like. But we do need to connect a few dots. First of all, the Scriptures do teach us that in the next life, we will have a body. For example, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home, a reference to the body, a tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, in other words, death, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. In other words, we will have a body in the next life. The question is, when do we receive that body? At death? resurrection, some other time. Well, as we think about this and we look to the Scriptures, we find that the Scriptures teach us, or the Scriptures rather show us examples of unresurrected people that are engaging in behaviors and activities that would seem to imply that they have a body. When we look, for example, again to Revelation 7, we see unresurrected believers doing things that seems like they would have a body to do those things. Again, these, uh, these believers in Revelation 7, they are standing before the throne. They are clothed in white robes. It seems like you would need a body in order to wear clothes. They are holding palm branches in their hands and they're shouting praises to God. All of those things seem like things that would be consistent with people who are embodied with people that have a body. Likewise, we see Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration and they see Moses and Elijah. Now, Elijah never died. He was one of the two that was taken straight, straight to uh, 
heaven. However, Moses did die. And so as Peter, James, and John see Moses and Elijah, you would assume that that means they're seeing bodies. Or we think again of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man who is in torment cries out for just a drop of water to cool my tongue. And so those things seem to paint a picture of people who have not experienced the resurrection, but yet are doing things that seem like they have a body. However, the Scriptures also very clearly teach the doctrine of the resurrection that is to come. So many places the Scripture teaches us of a a physical resurrection. For example, Matthew 25. That's an extended passage there in which Jesus speaks of the coming resurrection. Or John 5. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Or Acts 24, verse 15, there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So, Scriptures teach us prolifically that all persons will experience a resurrection. And so here's the point that we connect some dots. In my estimation, the doctrine of a resurrection is meaningless if departed people have already received a body. It seems nonsensical to me that there is a coming resurrection if those who have entered physical death have a body now. So we put that together with the pictures that we see of departed people, and I think the understanding that we come out with is this. We do not have a physical body until the resurrection. However, existence without a physical body is probably not like you would imagine it to be. None of us have ever existed without a body. And so we don't even know how to imagine that, do we? I mean, it would... You probably are like me. You would, you would imagine a cloud floating around or something like that. And it just doesn't make any sense. How can I exist bodiless? Well, I think the Scriptures are telling us that that existence without a body is more, if I could use the word, physical than you may think. In other words, bodiless persons still interact with their environment. The bodiless saints in Revelation 7 are holding palm branches, wearing clothes, and shouting. Lazarus, or the rich man, in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, wishes for something to cool his tongue. So, an existence outside of a body may be unsettling to us when we think about it, but if we think about it through the lens of Scripture, I think that we would see that that, that type of existence is much more tangible and, and it interacts with the environment around us to a greater degree than we might think it is. Um, but at the same time, we know that we experience our environment through our bodies, don't we? Everything that you experience, you experience it through your body. You touch a hot stove and you get burned because your body got burned. You listen to music and you enjoy that music because your ear translates it to you. You see the world around you because your eyes translate that information to your brain. We experience the world through our bodies. So although bodiless saints still interact with what's around them, those who are in torment are tormented by what's around them. Those who are with God are receiving pleasure by what's around them. Even so, when the resurrection comes, that pleasure and that torment will be greatly increased for both. So I think that's the picture that we have 
of exactly what it will look like and how we'll interact and that sort of thing. But let's now finish with just one more question that I want to answer. And the question is this. It has to do, once again, let's go back to the curtain. Remember the curtain. From the other side of the curtain, God has said some things to us about what is to come. And the challenge that we have is to be content with what God has told us and not sinfully desire more, not try to pull the curtain open. What I'm speaking of is attempted communication with the dead. This is probably a subject that you never thought you'd hear about from the pulpit. But the Scriptures have a lot to say to us about attempting to communicate with the dead. How would one go about communicating with the dead? Well, people have done this for centuries and centuries. Channeling mediums, people that claim to use magic or dark powers or whatever to be mouthpieces for people that are dead. The Bible categorically condemns that and absolutely forbids any attempted communication with the dead. Now you may be thinking, well, okay, we just entered into a point in the sermon in which this doesn't apply to me because I've never done that and I don't know anybody who has. First of all, let me just, let me just say to you, you may not think you know somebody who has. But I can assure you that that practice is far more widespread than you, than you realize. But even if you've never attempted to officially hear from dead relatives, we do attempt to communicate with the dead sometimes just by way of talking, maybe going to a graveside and trying to relate to one who has passed on. And that would fall under the category of communicating with the dead. Oftentimes, people leave this existence and go into the next existence and there's a lot of unfinished business with people who are left behind. Things that should have been said and never were. Forgiveness that should have been asked for. Forgiveness that should have been extended and it never happened. And so there's this unfinished business that we sometimes wish we could communicate with them who have gone on to make that known, to, to seek peace for ourselves. So how does God's Word teach us to deal with such things as this? Well, God consistently and emphatically condemns any attempt to contact or communicate with the dead. Here are just a few Scriptures. Leviticus 19, Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. A necromancer is a person who uses magic to communicate with the dead. Do not seek them out and so make yourselves unclean by them. I'm the Lord your God. Leviticus 20, If a person turns to mediums and necromancers whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut them off from among his people. A few verses later, a man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 18, there shall not be found among you anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead or whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. So God consistently condemns and forbids such practices as these. Well, remember, the story of Saul and the witch of Endor in 1 Samuel chapter 28. Saul wants to inquire 
of Samuel who has entered into physical death. And so he goes to the witch of Endor and she does this spell and supposedly Samuel comes back, which it isn't really Samuel, it's a demon pretending to be Samuel. And you remember God's reaction? God is so displeased with Saul that He pronounces a curse upon Saul for attempting to communicate with the dead. So God has forbidden interaction between those who have entered physical death and those who have not entered physical death. Remember again the rich man from the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man asks if he can communicate with his brothers. And he's denied. Because communication between the dead and those who have not entered physical death is forbidden. Interaction between the dead and the living is forbidden. So, what are we to make of all the stories of ghosts, apparitions, haunted houses? Is all that stuff made up? Well, quite frankly, most of it is. Most of it is just pulling the wool over your eye. But, not all of it. Paranormal activity is real, and it does occur. However, all paranormal activity is demon activity. It is not the souls of dead people. It is demons who are interacting with our world. The Scriptures teach us that demons have the ability to imitate people. The demons have the ability to imitate our appearance and our speech. And oftentimes, if a person is possessed by an evil spirit or an evil spirit resides in a person, in particular if that person experiences a violent death or a traumatic death, then the demonic spirit that was in that person can oftentimes inhibit, or inhabit, I should say, inhabit the area or the place or the circumstance, or the situation. And so those things, those things do occur, but please be aware that if, you, if there's ever interaction between paranormal and us, it's not the souls of persons. This, it is demonic activity. All paranormal activity is a synonym for demonic activity. The demons can know an astonishing amount about us, about our habits and about what we do, and so it is oftentimes very easy for them to mimic us. Now, some of us may have encountered some experiences such as these, and hopefully this helps you to understand what you are seeing. Some of us may have encountered visions or experiences that were unpleasant. However, some of us may have encountered experiences or interactions with what we thought were those who have gone on before us that were not unpleasant, but were rather pleasant and very affirming and actually brought peace. And this is the part that's a little bit difficult because we should understand that all interaction between what we think are those who are dead and us is not the activity of those people. It is the activity of demons. You see, Scripture teaches us that those who are the children of Satan and Satan himself are very adept at imitating light. For example, 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 11, verses 13 and 14. Paul's talking about false 
teachers and false apostles and how they can disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. And he says this, and no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And so, I have no idea if anyone in this room has ever experienced anything like this. If you have, then just please be aware that it is an attempt by something that is evil to gain a window into your life. I can stand with the authority of Scripture and say to you that God condemns and forbids and prevents all interaction between those who are on the other side of the curtain and those who are on this side of the curtain. Scripture is very clear about all attempts at communicating with the dead. They are forbidden. In Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah says this, When I say to you, inquire the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Or, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. I want to relate to you an experience that I've had, the one that I'm not proud of. Anybody have experiences from the past that you wish didn't happen? Well, so do I. There's a period in my life in which I was far from God. And that period included my college years. And one of the things that happened during those college years was this. I had some friends who had a Ouija board. If you're familiar with those things, um, stay away from them. If you're not familiar with them, then they're just a, a board that has some letters on it. The alphabet, it has some other words and different things. and has a triangle with an indicator and the, the idea is that people put their hands on, on the indicator and it's a way to communicate with um, those in the other world. I can assure you that they work. I can also assure you that what you communicate with are not the souls of people. I can assure you that what communicates with you through those things is vile, demonic, terrible spellers, very bitter, full of anger. No, they know no more about the future than you do. They attempt to deceive you into thinking that you're communicating with a person. And as you ask them more questions about that person, they get very angry. But just suffice to say that the demonic looks for every window it can to access your life. I'm not suggesting that a child of Christ can ever be possessed by a demon. That cannot happen. However, we are children of their enemy. And they will seek every opportunity they can. They will disguise themselves as light if they have to. They will seek every opportunity they can to gain access into your thoughts. Do not open yourself up to communication with anyone who has passed on from this life to the next. So then, what are we to do? What are we to do? If someone from this life has entered into the next life and there just needs to be peace made with that person, there's just something that just should have, been, should have been said when you were alive. It didn't get said. What do you do? Folks, you say it to God. 
If forgiveness needs to be extended, you, you say that to God. If forgiveness needs to be asked for, you say that to God. And rest assured that the God of the universe is able to communicate that to those people if needed. However, please understand this. Whatever you feel you may need to communicate to those on the other side of the curtain will not change their existence one bit. It's only for you. Those on the other side of the curtain, if they are experiencing the pleasure of God, you cannot add to that pleasure. It already is as much as it can be. If they are experiencing torment of the separation of God, then you cannot alleviate their situation at all. So whatever you feel you may need to say, whatever peace you may need to make, it's for your purposes, not the one on the other side of the curtain. But the Gospel tells us that we have one who went to the other side of the curtain and now came back. There's only one who has received His resurrection body. And He is the one to whom we look. He is the one that if peace needs to be made, we make peace with Him. And we trust in Him. Because He is the one who didn't just go to the other side of the curtain. He went to the dark side of the curtain. And came back for you and for me. I hope this helps us to think biblically about that curtain what's beyond it. For those who are located outside of Christ, that curtain is a fearful thing. For those outside of Christ, you don't want to go anywhere near that curtain. But the sad thing is, you have an appointment with that curtain that you cannot change. For those who are in Christ, that curtain is like a glorious door that will open up into existence that is far more pleasurable, more satisfying, more gratifying than I am capable of putting in.